Solve the World, Episode 6, Remember, Remember. What separates humans from the animal kingdom? There's a bunch of solutions to that question that aren't actually solutions at all. Language, for one. Yet researchers have found that many species have various forms of detailed communication patterns. It's believed that the clicking language of dolphins goes so far as to include proper names. Clickety clickety clack clack clickers over there is such an a-hole, if you ask me. Last week he ate clack clickerson's tuna. Can you believe that? See, there's no singular physical trait that separates us. Apes have opposable thumbs, and rabbits have appendices. Perhaps then the most straightforward answer is to state the obvious. Intelligence. But then, if merely intelligence separates us, that implies that there's a mystical barrier of smarty pantsness that divides us from them. Does a zygote have such an intelligence yet? Surely not. Therefore, a zygote is not a human, it's an animal. I've met some pretty smart dogs in my day, say, that appear at least as smart as many toddlers I know. Intelligence doesn't work as a litmus test for humanity, because too many humans would fail that test. You'd have to throw a bundle of humanity into the animal realm in order for that to work. And that's racist, and sexist, and ageist, and all the other angry ists that can be imagined. What separates humans from the animal kingdom? The answer is this. Ambition. Ambition alone separates us from them. Jennifer's ambition is to solve the world. No animal in the history of this planet has ever held such a dream before as that. But such fanciful thoughts didn't yet fill Jen's mind as she got off the train in Union Station. She'd spent 41 lovely hours, minus the unsatisfying recurring dream, on the Sunset Limited from Lake Charles to Los Angeles. Though she kept to herself mostly during the trip, she enjoyed staring out the window at the vast deserts of America, as well as occasionally perusing her newly acquired book, Fifty People Whom I Pity. The book was very short, and Jen found herself reading certain, quote, people over and over again. The book was divided not by chapter, but by person. Each little overview of a person was nary a page or two long, and included not much more than the odd author's perspective as to why he found the need to pity these specific individuals. Note, Entry 41, in fact, is not a person, but a people group. It reads, 41, the French generation circa 1918 to the present day. Miss Dash spent much more time not so much reading as she was pondering the merits of the guidelines Atticus and Joseph further made for her. More than anything else, she wondered how much of the list came from Atticus himself. He was such a lovely boy. Now, off the train. Jennifer Dash had no game plan. She'd never been to Los Angeles, never been to California, never been outside of Louisiana. So she walked. The first thing that was amazingly apparent were the people. People. P 
people everywhere, and things, and shops, and homes. Jen thought it best to get to the ocean. She assumed once she was there, she could find some sort of ship that would take her on. Even in her already naive brain, the plan sounded vague and not less than a little hopeless. Still, she walked. A couple of cutely dressed girls her age walked by. Jen called out to them. Excuse me, do y'all know how to get to the ocean? Um, no thank you? One of the girls said without looking up from her phone. A bit later, Jen took a stab again, asking a jogger. He stopped, smiled, and typed some doodads into his smartphone. Looks like the quickest way is to hop on the 101 to the 110, and then just take the 10 west to Santa Monica. Oh, okay, thanks. No problem. The jogger jogged off. Jennifer walked on on her never-ending walk. Much of what follows is rather dull. Jennifer arrived at Union Station at 10 a.m. By 7 p.m., she was very much lost, very much not at the sea, very hungry, and very tired. She sat on a curb for an hour. She wandered into shops. By 11 p.m., she was done. Just completely done with the day. Yet it's hard to be done with something when you don't have a home to escape to. Thankfully, Jennifer found a bench. If she'd known at that time she was so close to Hollywood, she would have drudged on for the sheer joy of sleeping on a Hollywood square. Alas, she had no idea where she was. Her stomach ached. Jen lay down snug on the bench, opened up her little book of pitiful people, and read three entries. First, she read about Amelia Earhart and the obvious pity of disappearing into nowhere. Secondly, she read about Madame Curie and the even more obvious pity of radiation poisoning. Thirdly, she read about Yves Klein, which I shall recite here in full. Twenty-seven, Yves Klein. When I was a child, I closed my eyes real tight-like, focusing all my effort to imagine a new color. Something marvelous, something new. I universally failed. Every single time. My mother told me to pray for new colors in heaven, implying that a theoretical afterlife remained my best shot at seeing the unfathomable. Our buddy here, Yves Klein, is granted the fame for his invention of a color, before anyone tears out their eyes in utter bemusement or sanctimonious disbelief. I should state more precisely. Yves Klein invented, nay patented, a specific hue of blue. Apparently, he found a way to capture a color vibration very near to that of lapis lazuli. Many refer to it as a sort of ultramarine. Yves called it International Klein Blue, or IKB for short. He slapped this color on nearly everything. Canvases, statues, naked women, etc., etc., etc. If there's one thing I've grown to know about artists, it is that for supposedly being creative, so many of them seem to fancy the tedium of repetition. Thus is the case with Mr. Klein's work. Blue, blue, everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Bah humbug. If one happened to be strolling around Paris in 1958, one might be tempted to venture into an exhibition of Klein's, entitled The Specialization of Sensibility in the Raw Material State into Stabilized Pictorial Sensibility, comma, The Void. Of course, when one is planning such an extravagant discourse on laziness, it is beyond mandatory that a perfunctory, inane, stupidly verbose title be given to said work, more pointedly, unwork. What one found there on that day, in the midst of those four walls declaring his craftsmanship, is exactly nothing. Klein took everything out of the exhibit hall except one solemn cabinet. He painted the walls of Boris White. He didn't even use IKB. Nothing. Reportedly, 3,000 souls rushed to the premiere to witness this nothingness in motion. So here belies the unenviable task of discerning what exactly Mr. Yves Klein was attempting in his famed undertakings of patented hues and ceremonious nothings. 
Was it merely for reward? Sadly, no. If Mr. Klein were merely a huckster, a painter by virtue of his vice of greed, then all would be forgiven. He'd be a carny, a used car salesman, a trunk car Rolex vendor, a respectable member of the community. No. The pity of it all remains that Yves Klein was anything but a sham artist. Absolutely no. He's the real deal. And therein lies the pity. A story from Klein's youth has made the circuit and found its place among Klein's profile as if it casts light on his bravura. As the story goes, supposedly Klein and two other schoolyard friends were laying claim to the cosmos. The first child claimed the earth below them, the second chose words. Klein, stupidly, chose the space around the planet. He clearly got the short end of the claiming the universe stick. Nevertheless, this anecdote does relate to us a sense of Klein, a boy reaching for the infinite. Here's the point. We can't reach for the infinite. If we try, we just grab useless air. That's why I couldn't imagine a new color. I gain nothing by trying. Neither does Klein. You don't flirt with the infinite, with the unimaginable, by imagining using your finite imagination. Read this. The only hope we have of truly touching the void, of discovering something new, is by going somewhere we've never gone before. Using the matter around us, or lack of matter, is useless and a waste of a life. Each chapter of the little book ended with the same mantra, Remember, Remember. Number 27 was no different. It read, Remember, Remember. There's nothing new under the sun. Don't lie to yourself and convince yourself otherwise. <laughs> In digesting this, Jennifer Dash was irate. Who did this author think he was? What an idiot. Absurd. Absolutely absurd. Pupils dilated. Hair on end. She wanted to punch the author in the face. And she was also utterly delighted. Jen laughed heartily on her bench. Any onlooker would have spotted her as a crack or otherwise indisposed drug user by the manner her hilarious convulsions brought on. She laughed because she was so unaccustomed to anger. It was a new sensation for Jen. She was not a character inclined towards anger. No. In its stead stood hopefulness, presumption of best intent, and empathy. The laugh took Jen by storm, and with it came all the fondness for life the past day of meanderings had sucked out. She was living. She was here, in California. There were palm trees. Life was everywhere. The world was buzzing. And Jennifer Dash had suddenly entered into it. She was a player now in that great chess game. She was an associate in the coalition that was the biological life force of Los Angeles, California. What a thing. What a thing indeed. At this point, Jen took notice of a fellow brother, or sister, a fellow adventurer, a fellow liver of life, a squirrel. This particular squirrel was bantering around a limb of a tree, sprinting from its base to its skinniest end with seemingly reckless abandon. Why, hello there, friend, Jen said to the squirrel. How are you this evening? The squirrel didn't have an answer. What you running around for? Jen fumbled in her mind for an answer. Maybe the poor little critter lost his acorn. His sole acorn. His only reason for living. No. Too contrived. Too coyote and roadrunner. Jen refused to believe that the animal kingdom solely contemplated the prospect of food. That alone would be a silly life. Jen hadn't had anything to eat all day. Yet you didn't see her running back and forth on the bench like a delusional holocaust survivor. No. Here she was, smelling the lilies of life and contextualizing for herself what a squirrel's life is about. Surely he could do something similar. 
Wonder about the moon, perhaps. The stars? No, Jen devised. His loves run away. Off to marry some other squirrel on some other tree from some other squirrel tribe. Squirrels don't care about love. That's a human trait, Jen said aloud. Her thoughts responded. Is that true? Can't animals love? Jen had watched plenty of videos in her day of animals returning to their owners, full of supposed love and love almost lost. What capacity do you have, squirrel friend? Just like that, an answer came to Jennifer Dash. Capacity. The squirrel was limited by its capacity. If it didn't love, or never felt the ache of unrequited love, t'was not the squirrel's fault. Rather, it was a capacity complex. Jen's mind raced. Something like a computer. We all have a hard drive. We all have a maximum capacity for knowledge. I can work and toil my whole life, but if I can't up my capacity, my destiny is predetermined. I have to find a way to up my capacity. But how does one do that? One couldn't merely think a new color into existence, just as one can't merely think up one's capacity. Despite this roadblock, Jen was pleased with herself. She'd gotten another puzzle piece, that was, until she looked again at the squirrel. Jen's initial machinations about the squirrel were wrong. It was not a love-wounded bachelor, no. She was a girl squirrel, and her belly divulged the truth of the matter. She was pregnant. This got Jen thinking not so much about the squirrel in front of her, but rather about the babies nesting inside. What capacity did they have? Correct answer, a squirrel capacity. Or was that correct? Maybe each squirrel has its own special capacity. Surely not all humans have the same capacity for knowledge. Einstein thought on some sort of higher plane than the rest of us. Perhaps one of those budding squirrel fetuses would be the Einstein of the squirrel kingdom. Perhaps the squirrel Einstein's capacity for knowledge is equatable to that of the average human. Hmm. Jennifer knew nothing of the philosophy of Plato. If she did, one would suggest at this moment that she was sniffing around the concept of ideals. Was there an ideal squirrel that all squirrels strove to equal? Or was each squirrel its own ideal? It's a spectrum, Jen said aloud to the squirrel who didn't care. Or couldn't care. The answer can't be a trait that lies on a spectrum. What separates me from you has to be something that I have, that you are completely devoid of. Otherwise, there's always going to be Squirrel Einstein that can fill in the gap. Jen's outspoken monologue got the attention of Sam Dearden. Sam was an older man at 82 years of age, who had exited his Escalade and his driver's presence so as to stretch his stiff legs. He preferred to walk at night because it reminded him of his youth. At this moment, Sam's stiffness of being caused his pace to be so glacial as to allow him to catch the entirety of Jen's musings, despite his hearing aids being at a low setting so that the local traffic wouldn't vibrate him around too much. Slowly, 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 Sam sat down next to Jen. Young lady, what are you talking about? Oh, I was staring at this little squirrel, and I was just wondering what separates mankind from animal... kind. Ah! Sam began to get up. His knees cracked one at a time as he slowly rose. That one, that's one we old folks all know the answer to. Why is that? Sam began to walk away. Young lady, that's an answer you can only learn over time. And why is that? Because whatever we are, we've become more of that over time. Oh. Sam Dearden walked away, but Jen called out to him before he strolled too far. Wait, so what's the answer? What makes us different than the animals? Ambition! After a while, as Jen began to fall asleep, she thought on about the old man. 
Whatever we are, we become more of that over time. What on earth did that mean? Was it possible for Jennifer Dash to become more Jennifer Dash over time? Jen supposed this were true if she started eating more. At the current rate of nutrition, she was becoming less and less herself. And with that, she faded into the brown-walled room, this night without the blood. Solve the World is produced by me, Dante Stack. I'd like to thank the many generous artists at freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org, where I found all the music and sound effects for the show. Full attribution for those sound effects and music are located on my website at dantestack.com slash solve the world under show notes. If you like the show, then please express your support and write a review on iTunes. That's the biggest way anyone can help out the show at this point in the game. Besides that, you can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash solve the world podcast. Also, if you're interested, check out my other podcast, 365 Honest Questions, which is on iTunes, Stitcher, or at my website, dantestack.com. Thanks! Hello, I'm Amber from Indiana. I've listened to all 100 episodes of Jen's story. The tedium of meandering the streets of Los Angeles can't last forever. Exciting things lay ahead. Next time, Jen finds herself as the newest member of an ancient organization, one with very specific plans for Jen and a very specific formula for how to solve the world. <laughs>